Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. All right, well, this is the Book of Revelation, Session 32, entitled Jesus' End Time Battle Strategy. And this is a really profound idea if you've not given it much thought. Uh, now, if you've been coming around a little bit and you've heard us talk about this before, it might not be quite as profound unless you uh, just kind of try to remember the wonder of the first time you thought it through. But what we want to do tonight is we want to talk about the book of Revelation, not as the scary end time book. We want to talk about it as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is what it's called. But we're going to focus specifically on this revelation, these 22 chapters, as Jesus' plan. And not just his plan for redemptive history, it definitely plays into that. But Jesus' end time battle plan, like Jesus as a general. Jesus as a very smart leader, leading a battle, leading a war, and the book of Revelation being the battle plan, okay? And that's how we want to look at this tonight, and we'll spend a good bit of time uh, kind of jumping into some of those uh, various themes that are developed in the book of Revelation related to this idea. And so, first thing I want to say is that during Jesus' earthly ministry, so when he was here and the Gospels happened, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a bit of Acts that tell uh, detailed accounts of Jesus walking around, saying stuff, doing stuff. Jesus taught extensively on the end times. So when he was here, he talked about the end times a lot. So it was something that was in his heart. It was something that he was communicating. It was obviously part of what uh, he wanted a mark of his leadership to be after he had passed. He wanted for there to be record of him talking about the end times. And so it's in the three synoptic gospels. takes up a big chunk of uh, each of the chapters that it's found in. And uh, Jesus gave us a lot of information about the end times straight out of his mouth while he was with us. And then after he left, he empowered his apostles, Peter, John, and Paul primarily, though not only. Almost every New Testament book has got information about the end times in it. But these guys specifically, I mean, Peter, Paul, and John got a lot of additional clarity about the end times. And that clarity didn't come because they were so smart. It came from Jesus. And so Jesus spoke it while he was here. And then Jesus spoke it to his main dudes when he left and was giving the church additional information about the end times. So it's something that he cares a lot about that the church would be equipped in. Well, when Jesus comes back, he has got a plan. Now, that's not a new idea. Of course, you're, you, would, you would have that thought process in your mind. He's not coming back and going to show up and go, well, what do you guys want to do? And he's got a plan. He's got an agenda. He's got objectives. And he's got a very specific mission with lots of subcomponents to it. I mean, he's been sitting around in eternity forever thinking about his return. When he comes back, he's not going to just wander around aimlessly. He has a very clear plan, and much of that plan has been revealed in the Bible. Much of what he's going to do, what he's going to say, where he's going to be, what he's going to do when he's at that place, has been given to us in the Word. He's told us his plans, many of them. Now, there'll be a ton of surprises and nuances we didn't understand we thought it was this and it wound up being that there'll be a lot of that too but there's a significant amount of stuff that he told us very matter-of-factly just in in plain sense meaning and so 
When he comes back, he wants to right all the wrongs. That's, a, that's one component of his return, a, a significant uh, point of his leadership. Jesus, who is Mr. Right, is going to come and fix the planet's all its wrongs. All the issues, all the injustices, all the, uh, the I- illegal situations and unrighteousness, he's going to fix all the wrong. And uh, <clears throat> when he does, there's a significant um, number of initiatives that he's going to utilize in order to make those corrections. And the book of Revelation tells us about a number of those initiatives, a number of the things that he's going to do to make wrong things right. When he comes back, we're all on board. He's going to make wrong things right. But the book of Revelation actually tells us some of the stuff he's going to do to right wrongs. So what we want to do tonight is we want to broaden, we want to widen our lens the, uh, the Jesus that we are familiar with from Sunday school classes, Jesus is at least that much Jesus. But there's a whole lot more to him to, than probably what we were taught in, in Sunday school classes growing up because some of the details are too gory to tell the, you know, the Sunday school class. I mean, there's some intense details. Here's what I want to invite us into repeatedly. We don't want to limit our perspective of who Jesus is to what we have been told about him. We want to know the full revelation of who Jesus is as revealed in the Bible. And if the Bible says it about him, we want to believe it, even if it's weird, new, different, uh, even if it's opposite of what we have grown up thinking. You growing up thinking something does not mean it was right. We want to know what the Word of God says, and we want to be on board with our allegiance to be to the Bible and not to our upbringing, okay? And whatever aspects of our upbringing, we're in allegiance to Jesus. Let's hang on to all that, okay? When Jesus comes, there's a lot about him that the Word of God tells us that we want to familiarize ourselves with, we want to be on board with, in alignment with. Look at this in Revelation 22. This is the end of uh, the book of Revelation. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy on this scroll. So this is now the, the, the book of Revelation. I'm warning everybody who reads the book of Revelation is what it's saying. If anyone adds to them, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. Bad. Don't add. Okay? If anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Here's what I'm trying to communicate. There are things about Jesus described in the book of Revelation that are not uh, your normal liking. There are aspects about him that we must not take away just because they're unfamiliar. Aspects about his leadership that we must not extract or cross through or pretend are not in the book of Revelation just because they're new to us or I don't like it or it seems too intense. We don't want to be those that are adding or taking away what's written. We want to be in alignment. We want to be in agreement, okay? Well, I want us to start to put on the lens that just like when Jesus gave us the Gospels, I mean, that was from the Lord, okay? When we got the Gospels, the Gospels were like intentional leadership for the church. Then when Paul wrote all those epistles in the New Testament, that was the Holy Spirit giving intentional leadership for the church, that the church could see how to interact and what to do in certain social circumstances and how to, you know, treat one another. That's the, the, uh, the uh, epistles, the letters that Paul wrote and others. Those letters are like super helpful leadership for the church to know how to move forward. I want us to see the book of Revelation the same way. To see the book of Revelation as Jesus's 
intentional leading, his leadership, him actually instructing the church. So they're not just words on a page, and it's not just scary stuff about the end times. It's his leadership. The brilliant leadership of the wisest man that's ever lived. The book of Revelation, just think about this, is Jesus telling us how the the age that we're living in wraps up. The age that the Gospels were supposed to be informing. The age that uh, that the epistles that Paul wrote and others were supposed to be informing. The church growing up into its fullness. That same age now wrapped up and the age transitioning now to a new form of leadership, a new form of life where Jesus is going to be on the planet ruling and reigning in the next age called the millennium. The book of Revelation is a really pivotal book. It's a really pivotal moment in human history, in the history of creation. It really matters. Jesus is writing the end time story plan and he's giving it to us as the wisest man who ever lived with great intentionality He's giving us the book of Revelation, which is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. He's giving that to us to tell us about how the end of this age is going to play out. This is Jesus imparting wisdom and leadership to the church. So as we talked about in the last couple of sessions, Jesus, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is going to take the scroll. And we talked about that scroll being the the end time plan plus... (coughs) And once Jesus takes that scroll, that's when everything starts to unfold in uh, in, uh, chronological order and and details start to unfold. When he takes that scroll, he's then going to begin to open its seals and that begins the Great Tribulation. Okay. Well, this is a really important detail because when that clock starts, we talked about that in the last session, when the end time clock starts in that kind of final three and a half year period of time, so then does the unfolding of the battle strategy found in the book of Revelation. That's the first kind of moment that things start to unfold according to the battle plan. I'm using that term battle plan, and I really want you to imagine you and all of the others around the the body of Christ are all around a a battle uh, table, and there's generals in place, and they're all, you know, looking, it's like you're in the movies, and they're, they're moving the troops around on the table, and they've got the, the geographic, you know, layout of the land, the maps on the table, and the troop movements are being moved, you know, with those sticks that move stuff. And, and the, the Jesus is standing right there, and he's leading the meeting, and he's describing the battle plan. He's describing, first we're going to do this, then we're going to come and do this, then this is going to happen. Jesus has given us written documentation of actually how he is going to orchestrate end-time events, and we have it ahead of time. He has given us the battle strategy at the end of the age. This is unbelievable. In fact, it's a little astonishing that Jesus would tell the devil the plan. And the devil knows how to read. He has read the book of Revelation. I'm confident he is fully aware, he is keenly aware what happens in chapter 12 and a couple other places, and he's not happy about it. Jesus is so confident in his leadership, he tells everybody, angels, demons, humans on the earth, if anybody's willing to read it, he tells everybody the plan. He's like, I'm still going to do the plan. You can't stop the plan. You can do whatever you want. You can't stop the plan. I'm Jesus. He tells everybody the battle plan ahead of time, and yet I wonder if it's possible that the demons are more interested in the battle plan than you, you and me, than humans, than the body of Christ. Like, we want to be interested in the plan. He gave us the plan that we might know it ahead of time. It's so crazy that we get to know this plan 
from the beginning. And I just give you again out of Revelation 22, 6 through 7. This is part E uh, under Roman numeral 1 still. We get to know the plan ahead of time. This is so crazy. Revelation 22, 6. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Jesus said, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Blessed are the ones who keep the words of this prophecy, who know what the prophecy says, who are paying attention to it, and then are keeping it, are holding on to it like it's true, are believing it like it's the end time battle plan, and are actually willing to partner with it and walk it out. We get to know it ahead of time, and it is our glory to be able to keep the words that are written on this scroll. All right, well, let's jump into some of what Jesus' end time leadership is actually going to look at or look like. <coughs> First, let's talk about Jesus' end time leadership related to righteous judgment. Now, I want to talk about that phrase for just a second. Righteous, meaning it's good, it's right, it's true, it's trustworthy. Jesus is holy, he's righteous, he's good. Righteous judgment. Judgment. When you think about a serial killer being rightly convicted and put into prison or given the death sentence or whatever their, their uh, judgment is, it is a right judgment that we would judge a serial killer. That is a good idea. Let's please always judge serial killers. Righteous judgment, are, those two words are not in conflict with one another. In fact, you are very, very grateful that there is righteous judgment in the land every time that there is righteous judgment in the land. Because of what that means for society and what that means for, for good and truth and, and all that is right in the world. Jesus has a lot that he's going to do as a righteous judge. A judge, but not a mean you know, easily angered judge. He's a righteous judge who's thinking about what is right and good and what is justice. He has justice in his heart. He is greatly concerned about right judgment. But that right necessitates judgment because crimes left unpunished will wind up breeding more unrighteousness. Jesus has going to do a lot when he comes back related to a lot of injustice that has not been judged. A lot of things that are wrong, a lot of iniquity, a lot of wickedness, a lot of evil systems and evil men and evil this and evil that. He is going to come and he's going to make a lot of wrong things right as the judge with perfect wisdom to assess those situations and to right the wrongs. This is a significant component of his return. He is coming to right wrongs. So let's talk about Jesus' end time leadership related to righteous judgment. First, he will judge the nations. I want you to think of the nations and for a moment try to picture a nation being treated as a one person. And God, Jesus, standing before the nation and rightly assessing the nation and going, you were about this, you allowed these things in your midst, you, you uh, fought me on these points, you had these issues, you were righteous in these areas, you had some good policies about this. He's going to rightly assess the nations. Look, these are verses out of Revelation, nearly everything uh, in this uh, uh, session is all Revelation verses, a couple not that just helped uh, uh, clarify some Revelation points. Revelation 6.10, I'm on the bottom of page 2. Jesus will judge the nations. 
How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? Revelation eleven eighteen. The time has come for judging and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Revelation 14, 7. Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Revelation 18, 20. For God has judged her with the judgment that she imposed on you. Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Revelation 20, 12. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. I just want us to recognize a significant thing that we actually ought to rejoice over. <clears throat> right now, <clears throat> there are many who get by with things that are not okay to Jesus. There's a lot that goes on that is not okay with Jesus. And they get by with it. A time is coming when he is going to come and he is going to right all the wrongs. He is going to judge all of the wrong, and he's going to set up right systems. So that's one component. When he comes, he's going to judge the nations. Part B, <clears throat> he will release 21 distinct judgment events. The book of Revelation talks about seven seals. They're all judgments, and they're crazy. Then there's seven trumpets, and those judgments are even worse than the seals. And then there's seven bowls of wrath, and those seven judgments are even worse than the trumpets. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. These are 21 judgments in the book of Revelation that aren't mysterious. I mean, the details are very clear in, in the passages that, uh, that these, that these uh, judgments are listed off in. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about those judgments in future sessions. <clears throat> we'll do a, a probably two or three sessions on the seals and two or three sessions on the trumpets, and two or three sessions on the bowls. We'll make sure to unpack those. But for right now, I just want to say it's Jesus releasing them. It's not the devil releasing these judgments at the end of the age. It's Jesus releasing the judgments as a righteous judge, judging sin and unrighteousness. So a judge has the right to pronounce sentencing. Jesus, in these judgments, is part of his sentencing on the earth, and even these judgments, the intention, as much as the intention is punitive to punish, the, the point of these judgments is at least as much to cause hearts to turn back to him. Revelation, I'm sorry, Isaiah 26 talks about when the judgments of God are in the land, the people of earth learn righteousness. That's an important detail because when God's judgments are in the land, it's supposed to cause human hearts to go, ah! And freak out and then turn to God instead of turning to idols or turning to themselves. The judgments of God in the land are actually in, in, uh, purposed to cause human hearts to turn to him. And so again, Isaiah 26, I believe it's verse 2, says, When the judgments of God are in the land, the people of the earth learn righteousness. That's part of the purposes that the Lord's going to be releasing. So there are going to be 21 distinct judgment events that Jesus is releasing. And I gave you a few of the passages there, part B. Okay. Now part C, he will come and declare physical war. This is the craziest thing. I mean, if it weren't in the Bible, it would be too impossible to believe that Jesus died on the cross, Jesus. Lamb of God, Jesus. Your friend, your Savior, Jesus, is coming to declare war. War. Like war. Like the real war. He's coming to declare it. Like 
you know what? There's not enough bad going on down there. I know what I need to do. I need to come down there and throw a little war in the mix. But the reason that Jesus is coming to declare war is because war will already have been declared against him. There will be a war that is both spiritual and outright intentional against the people of God and the bride of Christ, against Jesus' bride. Tell you what, if Jesus is who we believe he is, you better not mess with his woman because that's going to be a problem for you. And the, the, what's going to happen is we're looking at an entire system, a whole world that's going to be uh, bent against destroying the bride of Christ. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to make war back against those who have made war against his bride. Gave you here Revelation uh, 19.11. This is one of the most powerful second coming passages in the Bible. Revelation 19 verse 11 and following. It's Jesus appearing in the sky. If you're not familiar with Revelation 19, I want to encourage you, go read that passage and familiarize yourself. It is one of the most powerful passages about the second coming of Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. So Mr. Faithful and True is riding on the horse. With justice, he judges and wages war. Wages. He says, I'm going to go wage war. He's not waging war you know, just uh, sporadically, he's waging war with very clear purpose and intent on who and why. It's those that have been in great opposition against him who've been attacking his bride. He's coming to wage war against them. So one of the ways that Jesus is going to come back related to righteousness, part of his end time battle plan is to come and make war. So now my little analogy earlier about Jesus being a general around the war table doesn't sound so crazy. Jesus is the head general coming to wage a real war. And he has a battle strategy, and he's so smart, he doesn't wage war the way that you and I do. He's so much smarter. He knows how to wage war playing 10-dimensional chess, okay? He's, like, brilliant. He knows how to do this. So his battle strategy isn't just the stuff you'd think, like him coming out of heaven with an army. That's part of what you would think Jesus would do related to war. But you wouldn't necessarily think part of the way that he would do war is launch nukes on the planet called the 21 judgment events before he comes with his army. That's part of the way that he's softening the earth so that he can come in with his team, with the army on the, on the white horses. He's going to be launching these 21 judgment events as part of his preemptive strike even before he comes to wage war in Revelation 19. He will tread the winepress of God's wrath. That is so intense language. Look at Revelation 19, 15. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We're going to spend more on that point in later sessions. So I just want to, for this moment, let's just recognize the Father has wrath. And he's not losing his temper. He's not just like one day changing character. Okay? The Father has wrath. And Jesus is going to be the one that treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Jesus is going to be the one that is initiating, is orchestrating, is overseeing the enacting of God's wrath on the earth. It's Jesus carrying it. Okay, that's what's going on there. Jesus will judge the Antichrist and eventually Satan. Top of page four. The beast, that's the Antichrist, the beast was captured with it, the false prophet, and the two of them were thrown alive 
into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Part of Jesus' end-time battle strategy is to take the opposing general, the Antichrist, and throw him into the lake of fire. That is a pretty intense part of the battle strategy. That is not an unrelated part. It is, part, it is, it is a, 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 a clear component in the battle strategy. We're not talking about just one battle. We're talking about a strategy that includes multiple components, multiple facets, multiple pieces all working together. Jesus, the wisest man that's ever lived, fully God, fully man, fully general, is coming back to enact an end-time battle strategy, which includes throwing the Antichrist into the lake of fire. And then, after a thousand years, throw, throw Satan into that same lake of fire. Uh, next verse, Revelation 20.10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is all part of his righteous judgment. All right, well, now let's talk about Jesus' leadership related to the church. That was his, his leadership related to the unrighteous and making wrong things right. Let's talk now about what he's going to do related to the church, his leadership. First, he's going to vindicate his church. He is going to stand for his church, by his church, with his church, and against those who oppose his church. Uh, Revelation 18, 20, and then 19, 2. These are not the only passages, it's just a couple. In the book of Revelation, describing God standing with and vindicating his people for the trouble that they endured under the leadership of the governments of the earth in the past period of time. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. This is God making a specific promise I am going to bring judgment against those that were causing you harm. Those that were hassling you. The ones that were martyring you and persecuting you and taking your stuff. I am coming and I am going to stand in your defense. I am going to judge them for what they did to you. It's not just God is going to judge the wicked for being wicked. That's true too. This is, oh, I am totally taking up your case. You are my bride, and I am going to stand for you and with you. I am going to judge those that judged you. I'm going to impose upon them great harm and difficulty like they mistreated you. Just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The, the harlot Babylon at the end of the age, big subject we'll talk about later is going to wind up being responsible for the blood of the saints all over the earth. Martyrdom. Lots and lots of martyrdom in the last days. Lots of it. And here we see that God is saying, I have condemned that system. I've condemned those governments. I've condemned uh, that, uh, that entire scenario that corrupted the earth. And I have avenged your blood. This is God vindicating his church. So in the, in the end time plan, part of the strategy that we're supposed to understand is it's not just about the bad guys. It's about God fighting for the church. It's about Jesus defending his bride. Well, another component of Jesus' leadership. He is going to be preparing an equally yoked bride. You know the verse in Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. 
Paul was saying that. He was saying, hey, if you love Jesus, it's not okay for you to date a lost person. Don't date them. Don't consider them. If you love Jesus, you can't be yoked to an unbeliever. That's crazy. You can't do that. Well, part of the reason that, that uh, Paul was big on that is because Paul understood the revelation that Jesus himself is going to get an equally yoked bride. She will be made ready. She will be prepared for God's purposes at the end of the age. Now look what this says. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. How in the world does a church make herself ready for Jesus? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Part of what Jesus is doing in the end times, <coughs> he's orchestrating plans that are in the church, that are in the culture, that are in the leadership, that are in the difficulties. Because I'll tell you what, difficulties produce character. I don't like that, but it is true. Jesus is setting up the whole scenario to get the church prepared for his second coming. And it says that the church will be partnering with Jesus. She will be making herself ready. Jesus is making the church ready. The church will be taking it on and going, we ourselves are going to make ourselves ready. We are going to participate with this process. And then it says, of the church at the end of the age, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. This fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. This is Jesus' church being made ready but the church, you and I know we're weak. I mean, there's really nothing we can do by ourselves. But Christ who strengthens me. Christ in me. That's my hope. Okay? Jesus is going to be leading the church into bright righteousness at the end of the age. So part of his end time battle strategy is while the difficulties are increasing, so is holy righteousness. So is abandonment and love in the church. So Jesus is preparing the church with all the exact needed components in order to be able to overcome the difficulties that are also rising in the land at the same time. All right. He will claim his bride. There will be a great wedding feast. I'm going to keep going because I want to get to this next section here. I'm going to go to part four. Jesus' leadership related to millennial government. Millennial means a thousand years. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign for a thousand years. It's really clear that it's a thousand years because it says it like seven times. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. So it's not two thousand years. It's not a fictitious period of time. It's a thousand years because it says it's a thousand years. And it says it seven times. So I believe it. So Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule for a thousand years. But what does it look like when Jesus is running the library system? I mean, when Jesus is in charge of the planet... He's in charge of food production. He's in charge of manufacturing. He's in charge of, of government at every level. He's Jesus on the planet. He is going to be ruling the nations in a very particular way. And he's telling us about this in the book of Revelation. I don't know about you. It helps me a ton to know where the story is going. It helps me to be able to participate and to believe even in the difficulties because I see the light at the end of the tunnel and go, so long as at the end of this thing he's ruling and reigning forever, I'm okay. I can get through a minute of difficulty so long as I know where this story is going. He tells us he's going to take Jerusalem as his headquarters. He's going to establish Jerusalem as his headquarters. That's going to be his place of government during the thousand years and also beyond. He's going to establish new government. You know, all the kings are going to be in league with evil. 
all the, the key leaders of the earth are going to be in league with unrighteousness and eventually with the Antichrist. That's really bad news. The only way for Jesus to be the king of kings is for there to be kings. He's not a king of kings unless there's kings. But it tells us he's going to kill 100% of the kings. So that means he's going to appoint new guys. There's going to be new people put into places of leadership in the, in the millennium because Jesus is going to come and actually slay. Look, I gave you the verse there, Revelation 19, 19 through 21. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the ruler, uh, against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was thrown alive in the lake, the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest, talking about the rest of the kings and the armies, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. All right, so you got all these kings, they're dead. And rightly so, because they were wicked, they were in league with the Antichrist. Okay? But Jesus is called the King of Kings in the next age, and he's going to rule the earth. He's going to put new leaders into place. He's going to establish a new government, which is a great idea. You know, Jesus was actually doing that in the first coming. There was a synagogue system in place. And he kind of put his own new leadership team in place, 12 guys that really didn't have a whole lot going for him, 12 fishermen and such, tax collector in there, a couple other dudes. He says, you know what? You guys are really going to be kind of like the rule the world guys. And I, we're just going to do away with that old system. It's really going to be about you. On this rock, I'll build my church. We'll just establish a new system. So this is not a new idea. It's just one that's going to go global. When Jesus comes back, he's going to appoint new people in places of leadership. He's then going to rule over the nations. I want to talk about this last point here, and then we'll uh, get into small groups for some discussion. <clears throat> Part six, or page six. Roman numeral five, Jesus is coming. I love this point related to his leadership. Jesus is coming to prepare the planet for his father. One of the coolest things about the Trinity, in, in my opinion, you can have a thousand different coolest points. One of the coolest things to me is the humility of the Trinity. The constant deference of glory. Jesus glorifies the father. The Father speaks out of heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's glorifying Jesus. Jesus is talking about, it's better that I go. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He's like, if I leave, you get the better deal. You get the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. There's constantly this glory deferment. Like they're you know, deferring. They're just constantly glorifying each other and giving grace. It's so cool. One of the coolest components about that, to me, related to the end time strategy is, the Father is giving Jesus a prepared bride, giving Jesus the bride of Christ, okay? Then Jesus is going to take the bride and co-rule the earth with the bride, you and me, to prepare the planet for the return of the Father. You know the Father was here in the garden? In Genesis, he was here in the garden. And he ain't here right now not like that. His physical presence isn't here like it was. Now, he's everywhere. You can't escape him, but he's not dwelling with us like he was in the garden. That, that period of time has passed because of sin. But when sin is completely dealt with, as Jesus will deal with it completely in the millennium, when the whole earth is under his leading and there's not one district court anywhere in the earth that isn't under his leadership, every court on the planet, every police officer, Every diplomat, every, every business guy, every quality control person 
is under the leadership of Jesus for a thousand years. <laughs> We're going to fix some problems, folks. We're going to get some stuff right. I'm telling you what. There is hope for humanity yet. It's just Jesus. That's your only hope. When Jesus is leading the planet, things are going to keep getting better and better and better and better. One way to say it is, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule the nations from David's throne. Top of page 7. <clears throat> he will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. Jesus will be establishing perfect justice in the earth in every way. The reason the Father had to separate himself from man in the garden was the issue of sin. Jesus has died on the cross and has dealt with sin, but there's still the issue of walking it out. Walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus for a thousand years on the earth is going to be helping the planet walk out perfect righteousness with fear and trembling. Jesus is going to be, if you will, picking up where the disciples, and now you and me in human history all the way to the second coming, where we leave off related to the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey 100% of everything I've taught you. Teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. When Jesus comes back, that isn't over. In fact, when Jesus comes back, that's really a brand new chapter in the Great Commission. Now, Jesus will help the planet walk out all of his purposes and everything he said. Now, Jesus will take the Great Commission upon himself. And with the bride of Christ ruling at his right arm, right hand, we will be part of the process of seeing the nations fully discipled for the first time in human history. The nations. All of this is in preparation for the coming of the Father, which happens at the end of the thousand-year reign. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3, and then we'll break into groups. I heard in a loud voice, this is after the thousand years, I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, God has always been the God of anybody who will say yes to him. But there has never been a time since the garden where his manifest presence and dwelling was on the earth with man, as it was in the garden. That time will be again when the restoration of the earth is returned to the way that it was in the garden before sin. That will only happen after Jesus spends a thousand years discipling the nations on the earth, ruling in perfect righteousness. Okay, so ready, break. So get into some groups. How many groups we got tonight? All right, uh, we're going to uh, do a little bit of time of Q&A, and I'll repeat the questions just so that our uh, online uh, viewers can uh, hear the question as well. So Chris, we'll start with your group. Holy Spirit, where are you? That's, that's, so where is the Holy Spirit in all the end time drama? What's he doing? Uh, okay, and post. So in the millennium, what's he doing in both? Okay, so it's, this is like the funnest subject, actually. So this, this, is, this is a good one. Um, so one of the things to me that is um, frustrating and causes me to pray, which I think a lot of the frustrations that we experience are actually to provoke us into prayer. 
one of the frustrations that I've experienced since I came to Christ and started reading the Bible, how much Bible I'm reading that I'm not seeing happen in real life. How much Bible I'm reading that's not happening. Like people walking on water and people getting teleported and people, their shadow healing people. And just how much miraculous. But Jesus told us in John 14 verse 12 that he was going to the Father and that anyone who believes in him would do greater works than what Jesus Christ himself had done. And that hasn't happened yet. We haven't seen that. We also see in uh, Joel uh, chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in the most profound way that it's ever occurred in human history. And it's going to impact the people of God in a significant upgraded way to the point where it could be said all of the sons and daughters of the living God will have dreams and visions. Okay? When... When it's the one Holy Spirit giving 100% of the population of the church dreams and visions, those dreams and visions are not conflicting, they're confirming. Okay? So we're going to get raided by the Antichrist tomorrow. Nine of us have the same dream. You're going to get raided by the Antichrist tomorrow. Go down the street to the hovel under the bridge. Okay? We all have the same dream. So that morning, what do we do? We get up and we go to the hovel down the street. We avoid the, the attack of the Antichrist. Because we're all having dreams and visions. Those dreams and visions aren't so that we feel spiritual. They're for the sake of leadership. So we don't die. So that we operate in the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That we're operating in power in those moments. In addition to the prophetic side, Jesus' John 14, 12, you'll do greater works than these. When the Antichrist is operating all kinds of heinous systems and people are getting martyred left and right, God is not going to let the church be the whimpering, cowering bride. We're going to be operating in level 10 authority and power. And so the greater works than these, the walking on water, the Antichrist and these guys are coming and there's a lake and we're like, oh, we'll just walk across the lake and get away from them. We're just, why not? We can walk on water. I mean, Jesus did it. He said, we'll do greater works. Let's try it. You guys done it yet? I haven't done it yet. Well, let's just go. There we go. Let's go. And we just run away from the bad guys. And then the bad guys all get, you know, start walking across the water and it's not working for them. And then the piranhas eat them and they die. I mean, it's like... They, The Holy Spirit is going to be at a level 10 experientially in the body of Christ, like martyrdom will be at a level 10, okay? Martyrdom right now is a real problem in the earth. Whatever level it is, it's going to go to 10. The Holy Spirit is alive and active right now. All of us have experienced a healing or a dream or something, but it's not level 10 right now. Both the wheat and the tares are growing up at the end of the age together. And so the Holy Spirit is going to be more accessible, more, 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 more enjoyable, more powerful, I mean, in our experience. He's always been everything that he is, but we've not tapped into the depth of what is available. And so it's part of the reason Paul said in Ephesians 1, I keep asking that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Because it's almost like whatever level you've got, I know there's so much more that you could have, but that's not going to come without contending. We're going to be living in a different hour in, in church season. And so the Holy Spirit is actually going to be, uh, in my opinion, up until Jesus appears in the sky, the Holy Spirit's going to be probably the one in the Trinity getting the most attention uh, for that bit of season. I mean, it's like we're going to be interacting with the Holy Spirit in a significant way that's going to produce friendship and obedience, and it's going to be awesome. Then in the age to come, I just want to give you a picture of yourself on the sea of glass like crystal in heaven, 
call it two and a half, three billion people, two billion, whatever it is, we're all standing in the New Jerusalem in the age to come, in the next age when Jesus is ruling the thousand years. We're all with resurrected bodies, okay? And we're in a time of worship, and the four living creatures say, holy, 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 and the elders fall down, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit releases a wave of presence across the sea of glass, and we all get hit with it. The Holy Spirit's activity in the age to come does not cease. It's amplified. The Holy Spirit's interaction, we have, we're so dumb and small and young in our understanding and in the Spirit that we think like we have, we're getting close to what could be the full potential of the Holy Spirit. We, we have no idea. The ministry of the Holy Spirit for the ages to come. The Holy Spirit is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going anywhere. His role is just as important a billion years from now. We're going to grow in our revelation. We're going to grow in our fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So actually, the sweetest moments in the Spirit are yet to come, and then yet to come, and then after that, yet to come. And so, uh, yay for the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, good. Was there a question over here? Okay, so if the enemy has read the battle plan, he knows the script, why is he going to follow it? Uh, Arrogance. Um, the enemy is going to come up with the best plan he can. It just so happens that God knows the plan he's going to come up with. And so Satan, I don't think, is looking at the battle plan to go, I don't have any ideas, I need to come up with a plan. Satan came up with the idea, I'm going to have an antichrist. It's not like that was God's idea. You know, Satan is the one that's going to come up with this idea, I'm going to anoint a man. Like God anointed a man, I'm going to anoint a man. I'm going to anoint a man, he's going to be the Antichrist, and I'm going to give him my throne. I'm going to give him full power and full authority. That's Satan's plan. But God knows Satan's plan and is telling us Satan's plan. And Satan is so sure of his plan, he's like, this is the best plan. This answers all of the stuff in, you know, in the legal system. God had a guy, he was fully anointed. I'm going to have a guy, he's going to be fully anointed. Only I'm going to give my guy full power. When Jesus was here on the planet the first time, Father, I think you messed up. You didn't give him all the authority you could have. I'm going to give my guy all the authority. And my guy's going to win. My guy's going to get all the nations, and they're going to declare war against Jesus. And my guy's going to have all the arsenal at his disposal, all the resources, all the this, all that. He is going to take the absolute best effort that he possibly could, and he's going to act on that plan. He's so arrogant, he doesn't believe he's going to lose. I mean, think about it. Why did, he, why did he bail in the first place? Like, why, why did he leave his place in heaven? Didn't he, have the revel- didn't he know well enough about God to know this is not going to end well for me if I decide to defy him? But he looked at God and said, I'm better. I'm bigger. I'm better. I'm to be worshipped. I'm going to take him over. I'm going to be a force to be reckoned with, and I'm actually going to win a battle. So really... What's happening in the end times is really just phase two of what already happened, of what Satan has already been doing from the very beginning uh, since the fall, uh, where he's been waging war against God, thinking he can somehow win. And it just so happens his plan is pretty stout. I mean, the plan he's going with is pretty stout. It's a pretty strong plan to the point where the world has never seen anything like it, to the point where the church will have never suffered as much, to the point where it's, it's a really bad plan that's like, yuck. And he's going to lose. So, um, there. All right, yeah. Appreciate it. 
okay? <laughs> of all the different types of clothing we could wear, why linen isn't it kind of scratchy? Um, okay, I'll say this. I'll say this. I had, it's been a long time, and I'm sure it's very much out of fashion now. I had the softest linen pants, shorts, back in the day. They were so soft. So there's maybe a way to do I would just think that Jesus is into, like, comfort. So I'm thinking he's probably figured out a way to make the linen, like, very wearable, light and fluffy and, you know, very, very comforting. So uh, I, I can tell you this. Though I have no idea why he chose linen, he, his uh, wisdom will be proved right by its children. When we're all walking around in linen for 10,000 years, we'll go, Jesus, this was the right pick, man. I'm so glad you didn't go with, you know, Baba or, you know, with cotton or whatever else. I'm so glad you went with linen. So, okay, worship leader, if you'll come on up. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.